G'day podcast listeners, we are back with a special Foresight Super Series. This is season one and we're going to catch up and interview a few of the Foresight sponsored team members. Foresight Epitalis Fort is a revolutionary daily joint supplement for horses and is powered by Innerpath's exclusive active ingredient Epitalis. Endorsed by veterinarians and veterinary surgeons, Foresight is backed by world-class research and development and offers a money-back guarantee. Foresight Epitalis Fort is safe to take long-term and is a feed additive used to help maintain suppleness and willingness to perform, support for joint function and joint health, support healthy joints in high-performance animals, provide nutritional support after the joint injury or surgery. Welcome to our third episode in our Foresight Rider series. If you haven't already listened to the first two episodes, make sure you go back and check them out. The feedback so far from both episodes has been great. I've had a lot of people reach out and share their appreciation and we appreciate the feedback so keep it coming. We love hearing from our listeners. It's hard when you record these episodes alone and you can't engage with the audience to see how you are perceived. So please share, rate, review and subscribe. It helps us greatly. Our guest for this episode, Matt Oakley, is another great foresight trainer, rider and competitor that I've had the privilege to ride with and have known for the duration of my time on the East Coast. But I have even learned a lot more about Matt than I thought I would from this episode. As you'll hear, the struggle is real and you won't find a harder worker than Matt. Matt is knocking on the door of something great and I believe he'll produce some of the best cutting horses this country has ever seen. And that's based off Matt's work ethic and passion for the sport of cutting. Without further ado, let's cut straight into it. All right, Matty, I'm going to ask you the hard questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, first one off the bat, okay? What is your greatest sporting achievement not in the equestrian field? So it cannot be horse-related. Oh, mate, I was never a great sportsman. I um, I played a little bit of football and that through school and, and um, played some, some yeah, school rep sort of football sides, but I was I was pretty stuck on horses, so I never pursued it. I'm I'm not a I don't pretend to be a great sportsman. So is there so a, I, I mean I, I well I guess my greatest achievement and it wasn't it wasn't yesterday, but when I first started playing soccer as a as a I guess I was six or seven and and um I remember our team won um twelve nil and I scored eleven goals. And I never forgave the guy that scored the twelfth one. <laughs> that's so the best. That's achievement. that's probably as high as I'd ever got. That's exactly what we're looking for. When I ask this question, and I think to myself, "What have I got?" Um, I can't even think of, of something because I'm a bit similar. I did play a bit of sport at school, but yeah, once you get into horses, it's hard to fit yeah. anything else around it's that. Hard to do both. So then, going into that um, from that question, then as a child. Your dad's a pretty good horseman. I, I don't. I know your dad personally, but um, you know, he's, I moved over a little probably a bit later. But I know a lot of people have told me he was a really good horseman and, and, and well respected. Did you get into riding straight away? Was it your dad get you into? The yeah, riding? it was. It, um, my whole family, like um, my grandfather, he started us all, um, and and dad. Um, we were, yeah. I guess it's like I mean, I don't actually know when I started, but it would have been as soon as I could get on one or sit on one. Um, dad was a pop was a show jumper. Um, he he used to used to ride with Kevin Bacon. Him and him and Kevin Bacon were great mates. And um, my grandfather was actually selected to go to the Olympic Games, um, but he never went because his father was in a wheelchair and he had to stay home and look after him. So um, yeah, pop was very good. And um, yeah, dad was a he was camp drafter and and stock horse guy. We grew up 
just with pure stock horses. We never, we never um, really took the quarter horse route too early. Um, just all stock horse. I started. I never done pony club. Um, I started just in the stock horse game. You know, just all your hack classes and a little bit of dressage and a little bit of yeah everything. So where where did you grow up? Was you you we around Tamworth? Uh, um, no, Hunter Valley. Um, the first sort of twelve years that I was around. Um, it's Dungog, and then we moved out out west around Dubbo. Um, so yeah, but yeah, like I said, we never we never pursued the quarter horse sort of cutting type deal at all. We were just pure stock horse camp horse guys. Well, when I first came over, I think I saw you the first time at Wingham. I don't know how old it would have been two thousand and nine. Wingham Camp Draft, and you had a double dot colt then. So that would have been obviously Cordor's influence. Is that the first? Yeah, well, how, how that come about, it's, it goes back a little way. Um, and I get a little bit lost on the time frames here, but uh, I, I went with some friends um, up to Butsy's one day at Kingaroy to pick up some broodmares. And that was when Double Doc was in his prime. You know, he was breeding a lot of mares and, and Butsy was winning a lot on him. And, and I'd seen Butsy come down to the um, quarter horse shows um, camp drafting and stuff and I always admired how how he could get one to cut out and and um, he was just to me he was in a league of his own you know and and as a kid you know I guess I was 10 or 11 or 12 when I first seen him and and I just happened to go with these people to get some pick up some mares and and Butsy said to me um, he worked double lock the day I was there and he said would you like to have a ride on him so I hopped on him and I and I just literally rode him in a circle. I just walked him around yep. just to cool him out. I never worked a cow or done anything. I just walked him around and and that's pretty well that one ride was changed my whole direction. It, it just I, I just thought this horse is phenomenal. You know the 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 length of rain in front of you, the the way he carried himself. You know, obviously I was pretty high on him because I'd been following him a little while, but then when I actually got to sit on him, it was just next level so i come basically come home from that trip and i haven't owned a pure stock horse since i i, I that was my the day i was like i need one of these so that cult that you're talking about you see me with i i, I bought him um from narrabri um at the stock horse championships um gwen mcmillan bred him and um that was he was a pretty special horse really like he he was a yearling i broke him in and and um and where we were living at the time, we had no facilities, not an arena, nothing. I remember, I remember, I'd come home from school every afternoon, and and I'd I'd take him down the flat, and I had no no flag, no cows, nothing. I just used to dry work him, and I taught him to turn around on a creek bank, where if he took a step forward, we were going to fall over the creek <laughs> bank. So that's how I taught that horse to turn around, and and it's funny, you know, that that was a horse that I went to the snaffle bit futurity with him, and um and and went on and. And won all his drafts, you know, won his maiden and four or five novices, whatever at the time, and, and went on and won open drafts on him and uh, later sold him at Paradise Lagoons. But he was the start. What, what sort of mare? So was that of a stock horse mare? Nah, he was out of a, a shoe shine mare, which I believe was a quarter horse, but I didn't know a lot about. But, but um, just as an individual, I mean, I don't know that I've had one as forgiving as him. He, I mean... Like I said, I had no facilities, and that horse got trained, and he he stayed good, and you know, and he got to a level where he was he was competitive. Like I took him to Paradise and drafted him, made some finals on him, and just a good horse. Yeah, I remember he was really impressive there at Wingham. 
Do you remember the um, time frame when that snaffle bit for Trudy? Which year that would have it, been? It, that was 2006, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And how old would you have been when you showed him that? Uh, I'd have been like um, 2006, 16 or not right. very old. Yeah, wow. I was still 15 or 16, something like that. And I'm just assuming that's your first one. That was it? the first one, yep. Yeah. That was the first one and, and, and I still remember like, you know, you remember funny things. I remember riding down at the corner. It was at the old shed in Tamworth. I rode down at the corner and Butsy said to me, he said, can you feel your hands and your feet? And I, I didn't know whether I could. <laughs> you know, I was that nervous. Checking on your nerves, yeah. yeah. I didn't know. But that horse, I, I don't think I finaled him. I'm, I'm sure I didn't. But he wouldn't have, I know for a fact he wouldn't have been an embarrassment. He was a pretty good horse. And how did you get cattle into him at that point? Like, uh, Just just through, I used to take him to Butsy's a little bit. Like once I had that first visit, um, we'd go in the holidays and I'd take him. And then if I could find a cow in a corner, I'd work him. It didn't matter if it was a paddock or a yard, I'd I'd... I'd work that horse. So, like, I remember working cattle around a dam, you know, like I'd just find cows somewhere. It was just it was just one of those times. Like, Dad had a, a bit of a health scare. He had to have open-heart surgery. So so I was kind of bound by uh, – well, not really bound, but he was sick, so I couldn't go away a lot, you know. Um, so I just had to do what I had to do, you know. And, and at the time, I guess we'd moved from that one place up to, towards Canamble. And um, he was managing six thousand acres when I when he got when he got sick. So I guess there was cattle there, but there was no arena. It was just work him in the cattle yards or get one in the corner and try and hold him there. Or you know, you just come up with all sorts of things. You know. So then, yeah, that takes me to that back to that Wingham draft because you definitely had a real Butsy style, and and it looked like you had a you know because I knew Butsy a little bit. Um, that was probably the start of me actually getting to know Butsy. And like you, it was like your hat was shaped like him, you rode like him, you had a Beresford like him. Did it? Did they even have a nickname? Did they? Someone? I think I might have been there. Did you have a nickname? Well, I've a always, Butsy or some. Uh, uh, yeah. I know you got Straubs. Uh, yeah, I've always been Straub, but I would have done. I maybe done. you didn't know about. I was it, trying it. to model myself off him, and and um, yeah, it, it just yeah, honestly, that horse double lock himself. He had that big of an influence, you know, because at the time and even now, I mean. Double Dock could stand up now against any of them, but you know back then, I mean, he was he was a mile ahead. Yeah. Know, so yeah, well, I just we wanted in, to be like him. We're in WA, and you could, you know, we didn't have you know, at that time social media or anything like that. So it was just the magazines, and every magazine didn't matter which magazine from Western Performance, even really the stock horse at the time, Butsy was in there with Double Dock somewhere. Yeah. Whether it's Cloncurry, Cutting, Drafts, like he was just. Yeah, he was quality. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, absolutely. So then, when you're growing up and you're there, did you know you wanted to be a horse trainer, or did you want to be something else? No, I, I never really knew. I, 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 mum and dad moved to Tamworth after dad got better. Um, moved to Tamworth, or out to Nundle actually, sort of not actually not far from Huey Miles's place. And Huey and I were good friends as kids, and and it's funny because we we grew up camp drafting together, and um, I remember back years ago at Dungowan. Draft, we would have been, you know, fifteen or sixteen, and we used to talk about going working horses together, you know. And he was he was probably more up to date with working horses than what I was. I mean, I was established as a camp drafter, but I wasn't, you know, up to going and working horses and knew what I was doing too much. Um, so yeah, we we moved to Tamworth and and um, yeah, just just sort of went from there. So you say, Hugh, were you the same age 
That's yeah, good. him yeah. and I, same age. Yep. Right. Same so, age. So, you, and then now in the cutting, you guys look thick as thieves. So, have you stayed mates the whole way yeah, through? Or yeah, yeah. Has the cutting oh, I guess helped we, you? I guess we lost track a bit. You know, when testosterone kicked in, we we uh, we'll be competitive. Yeah, we were like <coughs> like roosters, I suppose. But no, we're good mates, and and um and it's and it's good. We work horses together now, and we've got a bit more of an idea. But um no, look, I never really thought I was going to be a horse trainer. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I went to school, Farrah in Tamworth, and and got to a couple of months into year eleven, and realised that I wasn't keeping up purely because I wasn't that interested in it. You know, I sort of got to where I'd, I kind of went because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I left school and, and just went breaking horses in. And, and then I'd done that for a couple of years and a few years. Had, had a rent, rented some places and that in Tamworth and, and broke horses in. And, of course, when you start out, you get everything, you know, everything from ones you want to ride to the, mostly the ones you don't want to ride. And um, but at the time, you break them in and you do your job. Um, and then I had a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a... Uh, life-changing direction, I guess, with the relationship. So Butsy called me and offered me a job. So I, almost, I took off. You're almost right on track with my timeline um, because I think I actually remember, and, and, I, and I had a question here about your stock horse days because that was also when we came over where we were based, you know, we were camp drafting in Western Australia and we'd just still do stock horse shows and we came over here to do the double dance stuff but occasionally people would, and I would still go off and compete and it was hard because we didn't have cattle to go drafting um, and be competitive, so we would probably chase a few more of those stock horse shows. And you'd get there and you'd have the white pants on and the jacket mm. and the tie and you'd get around and put one around, like you said, whether it was the hack ring or futurity or maturity or, you know, obviously the camp drafting as well. And I think I might have been just before you were leaving. I think it was like your last show down there and then you are heading up to Butsy's to take on a job and, and correct me when I'm wrong because it's – a long time ago, but from my memory, you were going to go up there and sort of have a big part in the in the camp drafting part, and Butsy was going to focus more on the cutting because I think he just transitioned from a non-pro into a professional. Is, is yeah, that sounding yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Yep, for but, sure. But then he went up there, and it would have been, again, roughly about the same time. He had a big wreck at the ACA finals, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's right. I, I was there a few months, a good few months, and I remember we had seven or eight fraturity horses, and, and I had... I had my first one. I had a client um, from from Canberra, and he sent a, a SR Instant Choice filly um, that I'd broken in Tamworth. She went home for spell, and in that time, I'd moved to Butsy's, and and Scott called me and said, "Look, you know, we'd we'd like to go to the Futurity." And I'm like, "Well, let's have a go." And I and I spoke to Butsy, and he's like, "Yeah, bring her up, and and we'll see." So. We we went for a few months with her and and she was she was a, a nice enough little mare and and Butsy was you know I was obviously helping him with his half a dozen and then we'd get those done of a morning move on to the camp horses. Uh, a few months went by and Scott called me out of the blue one day and said, um, "Look, would you uh, be interested in buying that mare or, or getting it sold to someone because we've our circumstances have changed and and we want to move her on." So. I was kind of a, you know, little disappointed because I didn't think we could buy her. Um, obviously, we couldn't afford her. And anyway, I had a good friend at the time, and he he said, "Let's buy her." So between the two of us, we bought her. On the basically, that we paid for on the Friday and had a bit of bad luck over the weekend with her and lost her on the Monday. Oh. So so in that period, uh, I remember I called Ian Cox in Tamworth and 
I kind of figured that we were sort of 25 grand in in this other mare and I needed a, a way out because basically she's she's no longer with us and and um and this what, is a long like for the listeners too 25 grand then back then think, was a lot of money yeah for a pre pre futurity horse like hasn't showed yeah especially you know, for a guy that's never trained one <laughs> yeah I mean we you know we think now 25 grand doesn't buy you much but yeah the horses weren't weren't bringing 25 grand regularly yeah no exactly so I I called um I called our friend. I said, "Look, this has happened. What do you want to do? I've I've got this other filly I know about." So I said to Butsy, "You know, I think I, I haven't got a lot of time. What do you think?" And and Butsy's probably, you know, as good as anyone at getting one trained in a short amount of time. So he's like, "Oh well, get her and try her, and if if you think she's going to be worth it, we'll see how we go." So so we got this uh, hard at Henry filly who ended up being hard at Hilda. But at right about the same time as we got her is when Butsy had his wreck. He, he went away. He went, I never went with him this weekend. And I don't know, I can't remember why I didn't go, but he went to Kilkeven, I think it was, and he had a, a, a pretty bad wreck on a camp horse. And uh, anyway, long story short, I, I from basically on that Monday, he, he got busted up on the, on the weekend. So Monday on, it was me. I was the guy. So I had to, in a hurry, learn how to... You know, I was along a little bit, and I knew the basics, I guess, but I still didn't know how to finish one, or didn't know, you know, how much I should be letting them cut and how much I didn't, and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, but that was that was also probably another point that really changed my direction again. You know, because he gave me that much responsibility, and he was in the house for a few weeks. He was he was pretty he was pretty wrecked, and um, you know, of an afternoon I'd check in with him and talk about the day, and same thing of a morning and. And um, and that's that's the direction. I mean, I'd I'd ride seven or eight futurity horses, and then we'd I'd move on to the camp horse of an afternoon. And I'd done that for a few weeks, a good few weeks, you know, till he was well enough, and he'd come down to the arena and and sit and watch me. Yeah, well, I remember him telling me about that time, and I know some people that were there. I can't remember who told me this story, but they were, they were swinging off the gate for the for the draft, and and the horse came over and on top of him, you know, and I think he was like leading literally every round. He was just. You know, having a, a good weekend, and it was start of the second round or something, and and we all know, or anyone who knows Butsy knows how small and light framed he is, and it crushed pretty much all one side of his body, yeah. and they yeah. reckon when that whole like it was it was horrendous the accident, and his body was lifeless, like they thought the worst, they yeah. thought you know he'd, he'd yeah. passed away at that point. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. so you know, for those listeners to think it was it was pretty significant, and then. Butsy told me, you know, again, the same as what you just sort of said. He was he was housebound for a long time and, and you were up there doing the cutters and, and he did mention a little bit about that mare, so I also had her on my run sheet here. But when you were doing that, did you think, oh, I'm going to – were you always going up there to be a cutting horse trainer or were you thinking that was just a dabble? Like, because it looks like from there, from, from my perspective on the outside – you just then transitioned full-time into cutting, like not long after that. Yeah, well, how that kind of come around was, no, I didn't go there to be a cutting horse trainer. I went there to learn how to do it because I thought if I knew how to train a cutting horse, my camp horse would get better. Yeah. And and I'd probably, I'd probably before I went up there, I'd probably, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of, lot of drafts and, and it was just a way of, of getting by at the time just with what happened and... and and then I moved to Butsy's and I just wanted to learn his versatility. You know, he could train a camp horse, a cutter, a challenge horse. And I kind of, I wanted to know more. So, so having a, a futurity horse and learning that way, 
was just a stepping stone, I guess. And then I just really, because I'd rode camp horses for a, quite a few years, I, I kind of really found the cutting interesting and really hard. You know, I, I found that you, once you've got one, st- one part happening, something else, you'd lose something else. You know, like obviously, you'd, you know, you, he, he's great for cow relationship. So you'd be working on that, but then you'd have to maintain your stop or you'd have to maintain, you know, rate or, or something would always be there, you know, angles, all that sort of stuff. So it was always really interesting to me, you know. I, I guess with the camp horses, uh, to a degree, you can make so many adjustments with your hands during a run yeah. and, and during training and all that sort of stuff. And I guess you can with the cutter during training, but when your hand's down, it really shows what you've been doing, you know. So, yeah, basically I found that to be really a new a new thing for me and and really enjoyed the time I got on those ones uh, while he was out. And um, and how it come about was uh, Graham Amos was going to retire um, and he talked about, talked about leasing his place. So we, we, uh, we made the move down there to Kalani. Uh, I said to Batsy, I just really want to learn off mouse for the next 12 months before he retires, you know, because I'm enjoying the cutting and obviously mouse is, is probably regarded as probably the godfather of cutting out here and, and I was really keen to know more. So that's that's the only reason I left Batsy's, otherwise I'd probably still be there. Well, he told me about that time. I think I was visiting not long after it and um, I think you're a bit sheepish about asking him about it all because, you know, you probably had a big commitment there at Butsy's and this opportunity came up and it's always hard when, you, when you're leaving somebody, you, you, you know, feel like you're, you know, letting them down possibly and, and he, he said you'd asked him about, you know, whether what he thought and he basically said if you don't go, he was going to go. Yeah, well, yeah. He, and, he and thought I'm it was such a good opportunity. He's like, if you don't take it, I'll, I'll leave you here and yeah, I'll go. Definitely. Well, and the thing is too, I was probably pretty handy for him. You know, I'd been there long enough and, and he, I knew he's a lot of what he does and he, he kind of get, you know, he could go away and do schools and, and go drafting and do all different things and leave me at home if he needed to and, and keep the keep the show going, you know. So it was always hard because that was always in the back of my mind. You know, I'm not one to let someone down. I, I try and if I, if, I, if I commit to something, I make sure I do it, you know. And it just, like I said, it's, it was just circumstantial. It was it was just timing and and uh, you know Butsy and I obviously are still really good mates and and um, we always feed off each other and ask each other questions and stuff like that. So he he was you know as you know he's got a very open mind and he was understanding of what I wanted to do. And then going stepping back into Hard Hat Hilda because we sort of skipped over her a little bit. You're and she's become you know again for the listeners who don't know she was. She became an awesome cutting mare, but let's go back to the timing. You said you got her late. How, how late did you get her? I got her in the August, and, and, and Coxie had started her uh, as a two-year-old. And uh, I remember I'd seen her at his place because, you know, back then I was still at Tamworth and I'd, I'd, I'd go out and work horses in his indoor if it was wet and stuff like that. And he'd, he'd ride this bay mare, and she was the first one by Hard at Henry. So I was always a bit interested in that because at the time Todd was showing Hard at Henry. So I remember I called uh, Ian, and he's been very good to me over the years with dogs and horses and stuff, and I still remember it. I said to him, Foxy, I said, that bay mare, I said, will she make the futurity? And he said, not here. He said, she might at your place, but she won't <laughs> at my place. Because he said, I'm not riding her. He said, she's been out for six or eight weeks or whatever it was, and 
And he said, I've actually, I'm going to enter in Nutrien, in, in Landmark at the time. So he said, if you want to take her and try her uh, and see how you go, because he said, I want, you, I want you to put it through Landmark for me anyway. So I said, I'll take her and try her and give me a month with her and we'll see. And I said, if she doesn't make it, well, we'll just prep her a little bit for, for Landmark, give her another spell and then get her ready for the sale. So, so that's exactly what we did. So I got her in, and, and look, she was starred on a cow, but she was, you know, raw. was probably, yeah, really raw, never really had the futurity in mind, I guess. She was, she was, uh, didn't have a lot of time, but she was a, you know, and still is. I mean, those good ones, you can't, I don't you know that it matters. I mean, I, I don't think it matters a lot what you do to them. If, if a cow means enough, they go to the right spot, you know, and she was, yeah. He was a ripper, really was. I know that when you talk about Butsy, how many horses he had for that maturity, um, I don't think it, was, it wasn't his best crop, to say the least, probably. And he said once he did get right, he said it was real hard to go to the arena and watch you work yours while he was working his because he's, he just knew how much talent that mare had and he's just thinking how lucky you were to have your first horse be her. Yeah. And he's sort of trying to turn these other horses that might have been average into something, you know, that would, would be able to show at the futurity. So he's probably struggling along and you're showing this mare and, and he said from, you know, like I said, basically from when he was right, he was down there and she she was something special. Yeah, really, really was. And, you know, I nowadays I don't use any tie-downs or any, like, like, anything like that. I mean, I've got nothing against them. It's just a different direction for me. But back in those days I'd... And I never had anything real severe. I mean, I was just, oh, I, I didn't know enough about it. But I seen someone working one, one day at a show with a string on, so I put a string on, on a, you know, and, and thought that was cool. And, um, you know, she, she yeah, like I say, I mean, she, she made it in nine months. And, and after the first two go-rounds, she was leading the aggregate, going to the Open Futurity final, and I'd been the one cutting show in my life. Well, that was my second one. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, look, I, I, yeah, I mean, I watch the videos back now, and I cut cows really good at that show and and it was probably because i had no fear of 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 messing up because i didn't really I, I honestly didn't really even know the rules you know butsy had obviously explained a few things and all that sort of stuff but it, it i was that green to actually the rules i just went and cut cows put yeah. them in the right spot and, and i and i guess that she was i trusted her a lot and because i worked her a lot like i every saturday morning i'd go down to tempo's place like um where butsy is now and work it just to get her at a different arena. Plus, we lived in town at Kingaroy at the time, and I'm not one to stay in the house. So I'd go and grab that mare and go down and, and work her at Tempo's place. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would give her a Sunday off and that sort of stuff. I mean, I never I never overworked her, but I always had in the back of my mind we didn't have a lot of time. Yeah. And, and you know, she just come through. And then, like, I mean, so that's your first one, and you're probably thinking at this point it's pretty easy. Oh, I thought it was – I thought this is a piece of cake. You know, I don't know why these guys are making it look so hard. <laughs> you know, I just thought this is easy. And and I'll never forget, I, I end up um, – I was fortunate enough that year to win the limited open futurity honour. There again, didn't know what I was doing a whole lot. Um, end up seventh in the in the open final honour. And, and two guys said things to me that I'll never forget. Richard Bull said to me that night because he sponsored the futurity that year and he said, look, you've, you're really lucky you didn't win. And I thought, why would I be really lucky I didn't win? And he said, because she's all downhill from there. If you had a won your first one. And at the time, I thought, I, I, I took it on board, but I didn't really understand it till later on. And, and another, something else that was said was, was John Breckelman said to me, and, and I was, like, Breck was really good to me, and, 
and I turned back for him and he was he was used to give me some really good advice and he said to me, young fellow, he said, the first one you train is the easiest one. That's all he said. And I still didn't understand it. Yeah. Well, well, I'm like, how can it be the easiest one? Because this hasn't been easy. And, and he said, because you, he said, you don't know what you don't know. So he was dead right. He was spot on. So, so you have her, she's your first, she's the only one you're showing through the futurity. And then you come into the next year. Now you're at Mouse's now, is that right? After yeah, that? I got to Mouse's, uh, I believe, in the March of her futurity year. So, so she, we were at Mouse's a couple of months before we went to the futurity. And, but she was the only one. I think I might have had two snaffle bitters that year as well. Um, that you, I, sh- you showed in the snaffle bit and I you showed, showed the, the snaffle bit on a couple of those and then I showed her in the open. Wow. Um, but she, yeah, she, she was you know, so simple, that mare. And it was only because of the, she was so honest and so much cow. Yeah. She, was, she had a real good blend, I reckon, you know, because you get some that are so cowy that they become a bit difficult. You've you got to try fine fine-tune the... The, the cow compared to how much you let them do it and how much you can control them so it becomes a, a good mix and then she she was just naturally had a good mix so when did you transition from her into buying rooster well we actually bought him uh we actually must have bought him as a two-year-old before i went to mouses out of the nutrient cell yes yeah, right, so I, rem- I, I remember that i should probably say again for the listeners this is highway to hell we're talking about yeah and I remember him going through, like, there's a fair bit of hype on him at the time. Huey Miles put him through um, for Raylene Higgins, two-year-old, I think, was it 70000 you bought Yeah, 70000 He was the sale top of that year. And, and it's funny, you know, because just going back to how naive you can be, I, I had Hilda, you know, and so I probably thought I could train anything. And and I remember saying to, to uh, a friend of ours, I said, you know, imagine if we had one bread as good as that. Imagine, you know, like we've got a Henry mare and, you know, obviously the dual ray out of one hell of a spin is going to be so much better. So we should buy that. Oh, and then th- that's why we, we did. And uh, and I remember getting him home from the sale and, and I and I had a work on him and I thought, oh, you know, this is a long way off what, what, what my bay mare feels like. <laughs> you know, obviously he was a year younger, but it still didn't feel the same. So so there was, a, there was, a, there was never any doubt, but there was always a... You know, he's a high price and, and... Bit of pressure on you. Yeah, I've come and made the final on Hilda and now I've got to come with this other lot. And I actually had a fair few that year. I think I had 10 futurity horses. And I and, and some guys catch rode them for me, some of them, and, and I showed the rest. And, um, yeah, we, we had a decent year, but it was still a learning curve. You know, it, it was just probably typical of, of a young guy that thought he was further down the track than he really was. So when you talk about showing that first... This is what I'm intrigued because, you know, I'm starting to dabble a little bit into that cutting deal, only, you know, really doing the, the snaffle bidding and it was a bit the same, like watching it look so easy and you think, oh, I'm all, i got a handle on them and I'm not even going hand down. And then I struggled straight away with the whole putting a run together and, you know, cutting cows cleanly and, you know, keeping things in the middle. So you've sort of nailed it at that first show. Did it at all then unravel from there or it's always been easy no it's never always been easy no definitely not it it certainly i was lucky i i got to show i went to grafton cutting and uh it was it was a few weeks before the futurity and the and the first two horses i got to show i was pretty lucky i got to show spins miss kitty it todd won the derby on she'd finished her age events of course but still a great mare and i also got to show um stylish in time a pepto mare out of one more spins for sister so that shines like Metallic's mother. Yeah. Um, I showed those two mares. 
that was my first ever mares and put my hand down. And I had one other spins image mare that wasn't the class of those two, but that was the three mares I showed that one weekend cutting. And then I go to the futurity. You had a heap of confidence coming from those horses. Well, I thought that's how they all should feel. <laughs> I thought a three-year-old so, should feel like this. And, yeah. And, and honestly, and was I mean, that, Were they shakies? They were. He yeah, gave you those to ride. shakes me owned those, and, and we had horses for him at the time, and, and, and he, was, he was very good to us and let us show them. And, and, uh, and, and looking back, I mean, my three-year-old, I'm not saying she was spins Miss Kitty, but there wasn't a massive gap between how she felt and how they felt because basically when I rode her to the right spot and – and that on a, and a cow stopped, she stopped. You know what I mean? And compared to when you go down the track further and you have these ones with a little bit less desire and a little bit less try and all that sort of stuff, doesn't all feel like that. <laughs> you know, so I was, I was pretty fortunate. So, yeah, so then all of a sudden, yeah, you've got to get through and, and get your cuts and pick your cattle for those types of horses and things like that. Yeah, so you- and like there again, I, I, I never made, I'm sure I made mistakes, but I never made that many mistakes because I was so confident in that I could cut cows, but I didn't know the risks enough to be more cautious. I'd just go and cut them. You know what I mean? I'd put them – I'm not saying I cut every cow perfect, but I certainly cut them strong yeah. compared to what I'd cut them six months later when things start – the wheels start to wobble a bit. Yeah, that's what I want to hear about. You go back into your shell a little bit and realise that it's not all, you know, it's, it's not all roses and kissing babies. It's pretty hard, this stuff. So that's, that's the part because I reckon the listeners will get the most out of that because everybody struggles. And when you're from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, these guys just do it easy. You know, if it's yourself or Huey or Butsy, or we've had Linda on the podcast. Everyone yeah, just looks at them going, they're, they're so shiny. You know, the shirts are clean and new and the hats are clean and new and the gear's clean and new and the horse is shiny and you just go and do it. And we go, wow, they just must be so talented and, you know, way above the rest of us. And we go down there and try to, you know, emulate that on the weekend and, and fail and go, well, we just must not be as good as them. But you're saying at some point the wheels did fall off? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And even now sometimes you wish you could put a different shirt on, <laughs> you know, because you, you feel like, you, you, you know, the, the, the more established you become, the more pressure you put on yourself to, to do it right. And, and um, you know, you never, to me, me personally, I'm never above myself and always trying to learn and get better, but... It's not easy. It's it's not, and, and the reason it's not is is I always say you know every cow you cut's different. You know, every cow's got a little bit different feel. You know what I mean. You can you can be trying to make cuts and put a foot wrong, and it just lets that cow get around the corner a little bit and all that sort of stuff. And it's 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 tough. You know it's difficult. But yeah, like I said, the the easiest cutting that I've ever done was the first twelve months because I had to learn a heap, and I and and I just I was like I said I was probably naive to what could go wrong, so I just went and done it. And then with with talking about Rooster and stepping back a little bit, take him from there, you, you go to the Futurity the following year. Uh, how, did he, how did he go there? Yeah, he was he, he was he was number one out in the Futurity first first horse and the first, first go round. And uh, he, he missed the final he missed the open final by a point that year. And back then they had a wild card final. Right. And uh, I believe it was ten horses made that. And um, they used to take two to the final out of the wild card previous years. This particular year, they are going to take one. So long story short, Phil Conigan beat me on, on Suicide Blonde. Oh, right. It was a great one. Yeah. And, and Rooster and Suicide Blonde used to go head-to-head a lot. You know, I remember Phil marked a 47 and I was a 46. So, so there again, he missed again by a point. 
but yeah, but it, that's still a big score too for a fraternity yeah, horse. It was it was really good. Look, he was yeah, he was a really good horse, you know, because he I changed my training program three or four times in the in the time I trained him and he adjusted every time. I don't think there's many that would have. Yeah. So you're there at Mouse's what what was your next move from there? So well, Mouse retired? Yep. No, Mouse didn't retire. I was there and and I probably wasn't ready to learn as much as I thought I was. You know what I mean? Like Mouse, had, he was very open with me because I'd ask a lot of questions and he was very open and, and give me advice, but I just hadn't had enough experience to absorb it. You know, like he could, he could tell me all sorts of things, but you've still got to have enough experience before, to me, before you can absorb what someone's yeah. telling you, you know, and, and, and getting back to Butsy, he's probably told me 10,000 things, but there's probably eight or 10 things that stick out to me, of what he said. Mouse is the same. He told me a lot, and it's probably, you know, a few years down the track where I revert back and think, oh, that's what Mouse meant, or that's what Butsy meant. Mm-hmm. You know, just a situation happened and be like, that's what they were talking about, you know. And, and uh, while I was at Mouse's, we had some horses in work for some people at Glen Innes, and, uh, and it was a little tough to get enough cows at Kalani for two horse trainers, trying to train futurity horses, and... And Mouse had actually run second in the Futurity that year that I was there. So he decided to keep going for a bit longer. So, you know, it would have been fine if he had retired. I reckon we probably could have kept enough cows up, but it was just too tough for two of us. So I moved on to Glen Innes. Um, some people there had a, a really nice place, an indoor and, and a good cow supply, and they were, they were trying to sell the place and get back to Tasmania. So they put me in touch with some people that were interested in buying the place and, and, the, and the deal was that if these guys, uh, if I was to come and, and lease the place, so they would buy it because that's a stream of income and I guess help pay it off or, or, or however you want to look at it. But So we, we went down and met these people and they said, if, if you're willing to come, we'll buy the place. So that's why we did. Um, then, so that's how we ended up in Glen Innes. And we were there for two or three years and and I... I um, yeah, trained quite a few horses out of there. Really nice place, good cow supply, good mm-hmm. part of the world. And where did you, like, again in the timeline, because I sort of look at it now and you've got a lot of mentors, um, Roger Wagner being one of them. You obviously go on Butsy, Mouse, and then Roger. Where did where does Roger fit in? Well, it, it, yeah, even before I was even cutting, I really liked his – and he was in America at the time, but he, you know, when I'm – used to watch videos and all that sort of stuff, his horse, and I was always just really interested in know how he did it, you know, and how they were so, had a, such a nice style, you know, they'll always look smooth and, and quick to a stop and stuff like that. So we touched base with Carolyn, Roger's wife, and and, um, and started getting him to come down and, and spend a day or a day and a half or two days and give us a hand one-on-one. And we did that a few times, uh, eight or ten times, I suppose, and then he, Roger, actually bought a little block at another little block at Maryborough, and he called me one day out of the blue and sort of said, "Look, if you're interested in coming up, he said we could work together a lot." So, so we and this we, was when you're at Glen, you're Glen yeah, Innes we're place. at Glen Innes, and, and so then we we packed up and moved to Maryborough, and uh, Roger and I cut posts and uh, timber posts and built fences and done all sorts of things to get it and built the arena and get established and and it was tricky there i mean i loved the time i had with him um but it was same thing it was tough um it's funny i 
like when I listened to Huey's podcast, he talked about remember that good trailer he talked about. <laughs> yeah. Well, that good trailer, I end up I ended up buying that off him. Yeah. So that was my good trailer. So when I was at Maryborough, we used to cart he cattle. Swear on he that. he swear he fixed it though. Oh yeah, no, he did. <laughs> it never leaked, not at all. So I used to put panels in the back of that on the ramp because they never had a cattle door, and I'd I'd drive out to Kilkeven, which is you know a good good fair drive from where we were, and. Pick up some, you know, fifteen or twenty wieners and come back, and and you'd get, you know, a day and a half out of those, and they were done, and it was it was tough. And I called Ian Francis a couple of times, and because he was from there, and and he said, mate, he said, I can't believe you try and train horses there. He said, it's you just can't get cows there. He said, I had to move three times, you know, a little bit further away each time to to get into cattle country before we could we could make it work. And how it kind of come to an end there, um. We we were heading to Victoria Futurity and uh, a really good friend of mine got killed in a car accident that night and, and I, it kind of put everything in, in perspective a bit. We were doing it tough financially and and just the whole horse training thing. We, we yeah, I mean, everyone does it tough, I get that, but we we did it really tough. And and having my mate get killed, I kind of said the case, I said, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't even... At the time, to be honest, I wasn't sure whether I was even going to continue training horses because it was just... Just the timing of everything, you know, we're doing it tough, we're making no money, you know, cows were scarce, hard to find. Um, we're learning the trade, we'd kind of gone from winning some cuttings to not doing Drew good, you know, because we're trying to get better, so then you go off the edge a bit and you're halfway between where you need to be and, and all that sort of stuff. So I called Rog and I'm like, look, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I don't think it's going to work up there, you know, and it was a hard phone call because I, I really wanted to know his stuff, but it was... I could tell we we're going to get broke. We we were going to get broke. There's no other way. So so we moved about back to Tamworth for for twelve months and and uh, lived between my parents at Tamworth and Case's parents at Walker. And um, that was tough. You'd go and spend a fortnight at one place and and then you'd move back to the other place and ship twenty horses with you at the time and your whole you know everything you had sort of thing and and it was tough. But we got by for twelve months and and actually. We ended up going back to Glen Innes to those that same place, okay, and uh, and and spent another eighteen months or something there, um, which was really good. You know, it was really generous of those people to let us come back, and and you know, it sort of helped us, helped us sort of not reestablish, but stop the wheels wobbling as much. Yeah, you know, put get some us money back away. on track a little bit, and and um, try and try and get to where it started to work a little bit. You know, so with the. What- Going back between the two places every fortnight, what what was the thoughts behind that? So well, just trying to get enough cattle. Oh, okay, so you'd run out. Yeah, of Yeah, you'd, you'd run out of cows there. You'd have an agent get you some out of the sale yards in Tamworth, and, and actually the you know one one of the mate that passed on the night we were going to Victoria. He he used to supply me cows, so obviously that was no longer. And um, yeah, so it was just a juggling act, you know. And and, and honestly, I, I guess at the time when you got no other option, you just do it. You just do it, you know, and it was good, you know, it was good in a way because, you know, we sort of shared the load with our parents, so, you know, neither of them had a real big acreage, so we it was always a big load when you come there with 20-odd horses and your dogs and, you know, you, you set up camp there to work horses and both had arenas and stuff, so all that was good, but it was still a battle, you know, it still was, it, you know, you could never leave anything set up anywhere, you had to, you know, shift your flags and do all this sort of stuff and... Yeah, so we did that for 12 months. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, I didn't know any of that part 
um, of your timeline and that's again for the listeners and at the moment it's if, if a young kid and I think we might have talked about it on Huey's podcast but if a young kid now steps in the horse trainer it's just it's like beers and skittles you know you don't even have to be, if you can break like what you're talking about yourself and Huey being able to just start horses didn't matter what they were for whether it was going to the Dolby stock or sale or you know, camp draft or going to the Stockhorse Nationals or all that sort of stuff, like what you guys were doing then and just, you know, just getting by basically doing that. If you set up shop right now doing that with your same experience, you, you could set up a place, you could, you know, get a new truck. Like you look at everyone, um, you know, I've had people work for me and they leave with only a few years' experience and they got, you know, Land Cruiser and you know, new floats and buying property and setting stables up and you're like, it just looks so easy because there's a bit of money in the horse world at the moment. There's a lot of confidence in the horse market at the moment. So people seem to be spending money. But when, you, when you're when you talking about it and for, same for Dan and I, when we stepped into it and, and everyone before us, whether it's Butsy or anyone else, I mean, it's not easy getting into the game and people listening just – it's like what they call an overnight success is seven years apparently you know like when anyone, yeah i mean yeah they don't they don't exist well if they exist they don't last well everyone just if you it takes you seven years to build it up and then people aren't aware of you on that scale they just don't think you exist and then when you hit the big time which you're a little bit backwards because well you still would have had a good seven years into you anyway but you do the futurity like you said you come out on top and then you sort of go back into almost a seven-year cycle where you're you know cutting your teeth again got nowhere to live going between your two parents' places. And, and that's what the best thing I think about podcasts are, is hearing people's story, which that's a big part of it. So, you know, you even said yourself, you thought about giving it away, doing something different. Did you have an idea what that would look like? No, well, I could never come up with it. That was why I never give it away. I always loved it. You know, I always loved the horses. Uh, I loved the challenge. I loved all that. But I, it just was so hard, you know. I still remember um, going back to Kalani, uh, that was probably where we done it the toughest, I reckon. It was just, I, I remember we, we lived in a in, in a little donger. It was 20 foot long, 8 foot wide and had everything in it except the, the toilet and shower outside. So so you had your, your bedroom, your kitchen, your lounge room in a 20 foot space by 8 foot wide. So when you, I'm not a TV watcher. So, so it, I mean, I like football and stuff like that, but I don't watch movies. So if I sat down to watch a game of football, it'd be 3 foot from the TV. <laughs> You know, and I remember we, we had no cooking facilities much. We had this little oven thing and, and Case would go to town and, and get this something to put in it and, and we'd put it on, go back to the arena, keep working horses, knock off for half hour, rip down and whatever was cooked on the outside, we'd cut that bit off, eat that, leave the rest in there and go back working horses. It was just her and I those days. And we'd have, you know, anywhere from 25 to 35 horses. So we'd go from daylight till midnight to try and get them done. And, and we, I'll never forget one day we, you know, it, it was a struggle. I mean, I'd, uh, it was just, it was tough times. And, and we had an invoice we had to pay for the lease and it was a big one. And um, we, we went to Kalani this one afternoon in town. And Kalani's a really nice place. Love Kalani. Get on great with Mouse. Mousey was really good to us. Um, but, you know, you still had to pay your bills and you still had to do it right. And, and I remember we, we went and bought one beer and a small packet of twisties. We sat under the bridge in Kalani, and we shared that and trying to figure out how can we get out of this. How can we get out of it by still doing the right thing by people, not burning bridges and still doing the right thing, but we need to find a way that this is not going to – because if this keeps going, we won't keep going. So, so that was probably the lowest point. 
And and yeah, I guess after that's when we went to Glen Innes, and that was a big relief. For, that was the first time you went to Glen Innes. Though. That was the first time I went to Glen. Yeah, so then, yeah. so it's a real roller coaster. Oh, it was. It, you know, we look back now, and and you just wonder how you, you know, it obviously means a lot to us. That's why we stuck at it. You know, yeah. and, and it's just a way of life. So you do it. But it was tough. In between those times, like going from Clarny to, you know, Glen Innes to Rogers back you know, to your parents and then back to Glen Innes, is there any time that you had hope? Like did you think, ah, oh, if I just get this done or that done, like it's going to get better? Or was it, were you just – like I'm just trying to, you know, fathom what it would be like in, in your mental space – are you like, you know, because we were like that when Dan and I started Double Dan, we were real naive and we were always struggling and we were real lucky with Pierre being a vet. She held a steady job and she paid a lot of our bills for us, both Dan and I. You know, we owe her a lot. So, you know, she'd do grocery shopping and, you know, I think um, we sort of, Dan and I covered the rent and she covered the bills. And Dan and I got behind on our rent a lot. You know, we went to the States and, and worked for nothing for three months together to get ready for a show. We didn't pay any rent while we were gone and we were lucky our landlord let us do that but we paid, had to pay it all back so Pierre kept everything going but for Dan and I we always thought that we do this one show and the beer and skittles are coming you know what I mean and then you'd get that show and get a few little accolades and a couple of pats on the back but no doors opened up so you'd sort of get a bit disheartened but you go right over there's another show that we're going to go to it's going to be a really big show whether it was in the states or here or whatever we're going to do that show was that's what kept our momentum going, you know, and then we sort of realised that it's not one show, it's going to be accumulating all those shows to eventually give us, um, you know, our brand and what we've sort of been able to achieve. But we were always hoping it was just one thing. Did you have that? Was it? Was there something that you thought, well, when you're talking to Casey, if we just get this done, we're going to be right? I guess, I guess the main thing was back then was making the futurity, continue to make the futurity final and, and I think I missed it in the, uh, you know, maybe the 15 year, in the 2015, the year after Hilda, I think I missed. Um, but I was so set on making that final because I thought that everyone in the crowd that watched you make the futurity final wanted to send you a horse. That wasn't the case. What, what I believe they want to see, and I still think it's right, is they want to see you continually produce a good product. Um, but what we, what we were very fortunate with was we had a couple of clients that stuck with us, one in particular. And, and he had horses with us from the start and not very good horses. And then we've, we've, we've built our way up to have upgraded the genetics, upgraded the horsepower, we made, you know, really good finals for him and won some money, and he stuck with us. So, so I always had in the back of my mind that these people at the time, and everyone that's got horses with us at the time, but especially these guys that have been with us from the really the low parts, they'd made an, invest in it, an investment in us to, to do a job for them. So that's why I stuck it out. And I, I, I come to learn that it wasn't the futurity final that put you on the map as, as, as much as it is, like I say, producing a good product. So there was no um, certain cutoff. I guess, I guess there was to a point as far as the, if I didn't make the futurity final, it would be a split second where you think, well, what now? But then I come to learn that, you know, the sun comes up tomorrow and you keep working hard, people take notice. So... It was just, it was just that, you know. I just had to believe in in what I was doing, and I, I'm, I'm always, I always try and ask questions, you know, like these guys that I really respect, Todd, Graham, and Roger, and 
and Mousy and, and Butsy and those sort of guys that have been there, done that. You know, some of the older guys, again, you know, they've all been there. They've had, they've probably had more bad shows than good shows, you know, at times. And and um, you can get so caught up in it being results driven, and it is results driven to a point. But if if that's all you worry about, it's it just becomes such a such a mental fatigue that you you just stop doing your job as well. Mm-hmm. So so there was no real defining point. It was just more I was so committed to the clients that they'd. They'd back me. I needed to stick it out. So, so, so you went back to Glen Innes, and then how long were you? I went back to Glen Innes, and then and then it was it was the drought sort of got pretty bad. And I used to drive from Glen Innes to Toowoomba or Allara um, once a week and get some hay. And and I and I only had our truck and trailer, so I couldn't take the crate off. Didn't have any facilities for that, so I could get nine square like big square bales in the back. That's as far as a tractor could reach in the back door. So the truck was like an eighth loaded of what it could carry, but that's all we could afford, and that's all the tractor could push in. Because if we put any more in, I couldn't get them out. Yeah. So so that's what we used to do. So I'd leave home at three in the morning or, or two o'clock in the morning and head to Alara to get up there at daylight to load to get back to work horses. And I just remember driving along. I'm thinking, oh, I can't keep doing this. You know, this is costing us a fortune to to feed them. Plus we're paying lease. Plus, it's it's if I'm going to stay doing this, I've got to start feeding cattle because the drought's kicked in and I can't, you know, there's no feed for them. I can't afford to feed them as well. So, Case's parents had a little block at Walker um, that had a, an arena and stuff there that we used to go down. Um, when even when we we're at Kalani and and Glen Innes, we'd go every April, March, April, and and break in two or three hundred weaners for this one guy. So we'd stay a couple of weeks and work the hell out of them, and and it, it was. Um, it was workable, but it needed some work. So we, uh, you know, like I say, it was hard because we had this beautiful indoor and, and don't get me wrong, an indoor arena doesn't make you train horses any better. It just makes it a little more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easier. I learned that too. Um, so we, we, I said to Casey, look, why don't we go down and see your mum and dad and see what their end goal is with the place? You know, maybe we could buy it off them. Like we had no money. I don't know how we thought we were going to buy it off them. So we went and seen it. And, and they said, yeah, look, you know, at the end, end of the day, I guess we will sell it or it'll get sold once once they've moved to town or whatever it be and split up between the sisters or, or whatever it is. So so we said, well, well can we come and, and move in and, and start doing some renovations to the arena and and one day, once, once we get a bit more on our feet, we buy it. So they agreed to that and and uh, we agreed on a price the day we moved in basically or the, within a you know, few weeks of moving in, we agreed on a price and... And they li- we lived with them for three years and uh, finally got it bought. So we've only had it in our – I've only bought it six or eight months ago, but it's ours. So so they moved to town and, uh, yeah, we, we I, I knocked the arena down straight away when I got there, or one of them, and put a pad in from the new arena and there again couldn't afford any panels or couldn't afford anything. So I remember I went to town and, and seen the guy that owns the rural store in town. I said, Pete, I said, I've got no money. But this is what, this is my problem. I'm trying to build an arena. I said I got a filly to sell to a client. I said he's a good client. He's going to buy it, but his his money's tied up for a month or so. I said, but you know I really need to get these panels. And I said the old arena's not working. And he said, yeah, no worries. How many do you want? Take them, take them with you. So we loaded them on a truck, took them home, and built the new arena. Wow. So yeah, and then we got the filly sold when we said we were, and and got them paid for, and all that sort of stuff. But it's yeah, I mean it's great. It's it's 
we've got a mortgage, it's still money you've got to put out, but at least it's going to be ours one day. Yeah, and it's a beautiful spot. I've come out there a few times. You can seem like you get lots of cattle there. I mean, the weather, oh, I haven't been there in winter because I'm too scared to go there in winter, but looks like, you know, during the summer months at least, you've got good weather. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's cold in the winter, there's no doubt, but the cow supply there is great. Like, we, yeah, we don't go a day without them. And, and um, yeah, you just got to start a bit later in the winter when the, when the sand's not frozen. Which, which was the horse that you sold to get the panels? Actually, we, we, it, was a, it was a filly by Hellblazer. So, so our, our client that stuck with us the whole time, we, we sold a derby mare, I remember, in Tamworth in, I reckon, in 2016. And I said, I think we should sell this mare and buy this cult. And he said, oh, what's the cult? And I said, oh, it's a high-brow CD cult out of one hell of a spin. And his exact words were, he said, oh, you know, if, if you think you can get the deal done, do it. But he said, you think it's smart selling a mare to buy a stud? And I said, well... Probably not, but I said, we're going to upgrade the genetics. So I said, this is becoming a horsepower game. So I think it's probably a pretty good move. So Rob Leach actually put that horse through the maturity sale. They passed him in and and I had, you know, within 24 hours of coming up with how am I going to do it, we had him bought. We had the other mare sold and him bought. So And what did he what did he pass in for and what did he sell for? We ended up getting him bought for 28. Oh, wow. Back, value. In, back then. It was really good value. Considering because you'd bought the... Brother, half brother, admittedly, but for seventy. Yeah, yeah, we had, and we'd also seen Hellblazer at the sale the year before as a yearling, and, and as a yearling, he was outstanding. Like he just looked. Yeah, he's an athlete. Like, as Raylene presents them, they're always beautiful. But he was a good type, and he just stood out. And uh, fortunately, he come back as a two year old, and, and we got him bought. And then again, a bit of an in, insight part that I know you've then done it backwards this time. You've sold the colt to buy the mare. Yeah, we, we uh, that was another one. We I, I said to Gav uh, at Nutrien, he actually come, he was really interested in Tom Williamson's Rebel Cult. Oh, yeah. And uh, he sort of said, oh, you know, we, we might go to 100 or 120, something like that. And, and I said, oh, well, I'm not sure whether that's going to get him bought, but I think it will. You know, it's hard to tell because that yeah, was... Yeah, once you get in that big you know, dollar. It's, it's so hard to tell. You know, you, you, there's a lot of people involved under 50. Yeah. And you start getting up over that, it cuts you... Your clientele down, I guess. Um, but anyway, long story short, that horse that horse went through, made two ten. So um, we missed the cult. So we'd still had Hellblazer at the time. I, I was going to bring him home from Nutrient and get him ready to show this year. And but I had planted the seed with Gav to to maybe sell him, and and they'd passed the Hoddish mare in uh, in the sale that Huey put through for one twenty, and uh, I knew they wanted two hundred because I was a bit interested in a before the sale. Because she was a hotish and she was a good type, and and um, I thought that if you could buy her right, I don't know what right is, but if yeah. you could buy her at the right money, uh, she'd be worth a shot. Um, so yeah, look, she passed in for one twenty because we were waiting on the colt. The colt made two ten, so then we're out, and I was I was fine, but I thought, oh, well, we're not going to have a shot at this mare now. And my gal said, well, we better go and look at this mare. And I said, well, they want two hundred, and he said, oh, it'll be right, we'll go and look at her. So we went and looked at her and. And I had to work on her on the flag, and, and I said to Gav, well, look, I said, I don't, I don't know. I said, I like the feel of her, but it's a lot of money. So I said, I, I'd love to train her, but it's you're the one spending the money. So, yeah, very fortunate he, he bought her. And um, and then, yeah, within a few days, Linda had, had grabbed Hellblazer. So it worked out really good. Yeah, so he got back into the fillies, and, and like you've said just before, you've now upgraded the genetics again, you know, got into the hot-ish and she's out of a good mare as well. And so that's your plan is, is obviously just to keep working up that 
Yeah, and and, and you know, Gab. I'm not saying it's going to be his last one, but it's it's probably his last, you know, serious aged event one. Um, you know, because he's retired now and all that sort of stuff. But you know, it's it's so good to have such a good client that sticks with you. You know, I've made some mistakes, obviously not on purpose, but made mistakes showing horses, and he just backs you 100. percent You know, and the confidence that gives you. You know, when you make when you win some stuff on his horses anyone's horses but he, those people that stick with you and are 100% behind you it's just something else it's, it's special so with all these horses we've talked about so far what who's the favorite have you got one oh I, I probably can't split um hard at hilda and highway to hell i probably can't split them they're, they're two different horses two different horses but i didn't know what i was doing when i trained hilda and when i trained highway to hell i changed between Butsy's ideas, Mouse's ideas, Roger's ideas, and then my ideas, and he still end up a competitive horse. Yeah, I still made plenty of finals, still won plenty of open cuttings on him, and it looked like he's like from my perspective, it looks like he was just getting better and better. Yeah, he 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 became was a lot of fun. You know, he, I probably missed him when we when we decided to to stop showing him and 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 send him the other way, and I probably missed that that gritty open horse that you could you know if someone comes and marks a 75 you knew you weren't out of the cutting you knew that if you cut your cows right and you obviously the cows are right you could you could get around them you know and i that doesn't happen every day you don't have them horses yeah as often as you think you do yeah you know you got ones that you could you can be have a shot on but horses like him that the could you knew if you had to get outside a cow and stop one he could well you even just see and we're gonna um you know get butsy on the podcast he's gonna be our next guy that we that we interview but you see that with Falaire, like he his cutting game went to another level when he was showing Falaire because you know, it didn't matter if who if he was first out or last out in a final, he was either going to try to set a score so big that you know everyone was going to have to work pretty hard to get around him, or he knew what he had to get past. And I think he might have done that even in Toowoomba with with Tyler, or it was a show somewhere where Tyler did put a big score down early. Yeah, and I think Butsy went out real late. And he just like power cut three Brahmins or something like that, and the mayor just was unreal. And you know, it must be an unbelievable feeling to. to yeah, have a horse. And, I, and I think Butsy would agree. You don't have you, you do have horses in your time, but you don't. They're not that, not to that level. Yeah, you know, not to where you are one hundred percent sure that wherever you ride them to, they're going to go and they're going to stop harder and turn around faster and stuff. Whatever you need them to do, they're with you. you yeah, know? they're not all like that. So. And being now that you're in Walker and we're going back into sort of probably life a little bit more, what I've noticed, and we talked to Huey about this, like, you know, you've got more going on than just horses. You've got a big passion for dogs. It looks like you're trading a lot of cattle. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I've always had I've always had dogs, um, work dogs. Uh, and, yeah, in the last couple of years we've, we've got lease country and, and we run about 300 dry cattle. We've got some cows and calves on I lease the little block next door to us, and then also lease another place as well. Um, so we sort of keep you know that 300, 320 head around us at the at the one time of our own, and then yeah, a lot of cattle coming through to work. So I've always had dogs that I've been able to sell. You know, always keep them coming through and sell two or three a year, and 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 that's always been an interest for me. Like I said, I'm not an inside person. I don't watch TV too much. Um, I'd rather work a dog or ride a horse. You know, so. so is that what you do if you, if you knock off, you know, and I just know from when I spend time with Butsy's, you know, if he's got five minutes extra, 
you know, of daylight, he doesn't waste it. So he goes and lets the dogs off or goes and does something with the dogs. Yeah, is that, is yeah that what I'll go work like? pups or, or, yeah, definitely. You know, or just always just checking cattle or, yeah. I, I, I was fortunate with Butsy. Like, I, he taught me a lot. You know, he taught me a lot about life, I guess, with work. I always, always knew how to work because dad and, and, and uh, my grandfather, they hard workers, very hard workers, pop. You know, as a kid, if you weren't running next to him, you know, he, he made sure you kept up and you, you did your job. And and, and it was funny because when I went to Butsy's, it was the same. It was the same environment. You know, you had to, like I remember, I had to run to keep up with Butsy back then. I reckon yeah. I could nearly walk now and keep up with him, but <laughs> I'd still be in a little jog probably. But, you know, so same thing. He, him and I had very similar interests when it comes to, like you say, being able to knock off, have 10 minutes of daylight, I'd always find something else to do. Yeah, and it's usually with a pup or a dog. So then, with with the cattle on the lease blocks, um, obviously three hundred head of cattle, you'd work those pretty quick. So it's not just about um, working cattle; you're doing that for another passive income, or what's? Yeah, yeah, passive income. Um, Long term plan is is you know to buy more country, and um, I just figure that time passes anyway, so I might as well have something else on on the on the go and and the cattle job it comes and goes as we know but uh you know it's 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 something i've, I've never wanted to get to 50 years old or, or 60 years old and think you know i'm getting starting to break down riding horses i i've got nothing else so i've got to keep riding horses i want to get to where you know those cattle yeah like a passive income help me buy more country all that sort of stuff down the track yeah and that's i was only just bringing it up to follow up really from from Hugh's podcast because, you know, we, we delved into it a little bit with him and, you know, he's trading, waking up in the morning and looking at the share market and, you know, you're trying to figure out another way to, to make money for the same reasons and, and it's just, you know, again, interesting because um, it's probably, again, generational change where, you know, we've probably been able to see a few horse trainers that maybe didn't do that or didn't, you know, the money wasn't there to do that too because, yeah. like I said, at the moment – you know, you make hay while the sunshine, like they say, where there is a bit of money in the industry, so it's a perfect opportunity to look at investing it and not just thinking, oh, well, we'll you know, buy another horse or buy a flasher trailer or buy – it's easy to do all that stuff, buy a shiny car or a truck or something that's, you know, going to depreciate rather than appreciate. Yeah. So, you know, it's really cool, I think, that you know, and inspiring that trainers are, you know, while they're in their prime or getting into their prime, thinking about, you know, the future and making sure that they – going to be able to look after themselves and that's always been the hardest thing even you know for me like my parents aren't horsey and a lot of our family obviously that means they're not horsey so trying to say you're going to become a horse trainer they look at you like you know you're making the worst decision in the world and to try to prove them wrong and you know be successful not just in enjoying your life and having a good lifestyle but trying to provide and you know have some security for your families is, is bloody hard to do so you know where they might have chosen to do a job that they didn't really like for their entire mm, life, yeah. but just to have security. Yeah. So it's yep. a it's a really fine line, isn't it, between having a lifestyle and having security, and and I think um, we seem to be getting better at it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And 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 you know we we had you know we've got uh, two kids and and Levi's five, nearly six, and and Molly's three. But you know. It's, it's funny how it all works because I, I'm so glad that it was just us back in the days when it was it was as tough as it was. But, you know, that all that sort of stuff, I mean, I, I don't say everyone has to go through it, but I don't really think it hurts you. 
you know, I think it shapes you to be a better person and realise what life is and, and put things into perspective a bit and, and also help you, um, you know, think outside the box a little bit by having to invest in, you know, like you say, whether it's shares. I mean, I, I haven't got the share thing happening yet, but I don't understand it too much. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, Huey's doing his best to get me converted and, uh, and I probably will have a little look at that. But um, just for me, I mean, the cattle job, it's, it's always had them, you know, yeah. and uh, as growing up as kids and all that sort of stuff and, and always around them. And I get to, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good getaway too. I mean, it's hard, it's hard work to, to maintain and do, do the job properly on cattle but, um, and manage your horses as well and have it all going on. But, you know, like I say, while I'm in the arena working horses and those cows are out eating grass, they're, they're putting weight on and we get paid for weight. So um, I just figure that, you know, time passes anyway, we might as well be in it. Yeah, Absolutely. So then what's, what's a normal day look like when we talk about you already, you know, the working dogs, the cattle, you know, how many, how many horses are you working? Typically, I know this isn't just on an average. Yeah, we, we keep sort of 35 in, in you know, any, from 30 to 35. We, we've got two staff, um, full-time girls, and in case as well, she turns back for me every day. And so they, the girls get there at seven and, and we get rolling. I mean, in the winter time, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I often, you know, I feed, I feed the horses of a morning um, because I like to maintain their condition and check on legs and just keep my eye on things. I, I just feel like that I'd, I'd rather do that. The girls feed them in the afternoon, so I always feed about six and then the girls get there and into them by seven. Um, and then depends on your day. If the cows are good, you get through them a bit quicker. If, if things are not great, you just take your time, but... Um, yeah, I try and get finished by sort of five, four or five in the Arvo, and then I'll, I'll slip away to the lease block and check cattle or put lick out or, or you know, do, do something on the tractor. I've got to maybe feeding cattle or something like that. So there's always, there's always plenty to do, but always trying to make improvements around home where I can when I've got five minutes. And Do you have a routine, like with your 35, like I've worked with different blokes and it doesn't seem some people don't really seem to have a pattern or at least it changes depending if they're getting ready for shows, et cetera, et cetera. But then some, you know, want to do the three-year-olds first and two-year-olds last and maybe show horses in the middle. Have you got – are you a structured person? Yeah, I certainly. Yeah, I, I, I really like to stick to stick to a, a plan. And, and I always do the three-year-olds first and um, and then move on to the – Depending on time of year, if, we, if we've got a little gap between we're not going to a show straight away, I'll still do the three-year-olds early and then I'll move on to the show horses and, and then back on to the two-year-olds after that. And then if I've got the odd camp horse or something that I've got to do a bit with of an afternoon, I'll do him last. But um, And then, you know, if I'm coming to a show uh, straight away, I might, I might work on show horses first, stuff like that. But it's got to be, there's always, a, there's always an order and I don't like being out of order. Yeah, well, it's, it's more, that's probably more common. And, and I'm like that. Like, I've got to, it varies for me because of what's going on. But as soon as I can get that to an order, it, it, yeah, it, it, even to the point if someone accidentally breaks that order by not bringing up that horses in the right sequence because their day's been changed, you know, peers sometimes doing bet work or whatever. If I'm not that busy, I'll stop and do something else and wait for that next horse to be ready. You know, if I've got to get my brain to go past it, and just jump on, you know, the next one because it is ready. I will, but if there's a moment where I can go, all right, I can either make this phone call or go and 
jump on the buggy and go off and do another job or whatever, rake the arena. It's like I seem to just find myself like I get locked there and I think it'd be interesting if somebody, if we've got a listener one day that's into psychology, there must be a trait because it's very common in horse trainers. Like you're sort of OCD to a point but you can't be completely OCD because with training horses there's so much variable. So I look at people and it's like, you, you know, you're sort of real particular about some things and then loose somewhere else. So it's like you're not this complete, you know, mess of yeah. of keeping uh, a structure. But the, it seems that's what I notice. You reckon you do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And and it's like, you know, even down to your three year olds, for example, that you you go into the fatuity with, they always throughout the months, they always end up in an order. Whether you know, whether it's be your favourite one or the one you get along with the best or and it, and I reckon you can nearly tell just through your natural order. You know, and sometimes it doesn't even happen, you know, on purpose. You, you just end up, you say to the girls, I want to ride such and such, you know, start bringing him second or start bringing her third or, you know, in a month of that, well, there's your team. Yeah. Yeah, there's your team. If they're not in the top five, well, those other ones, you know, they're probably nice horses, but yeah. that's that's just how I, it just comes natural. That's They're the you ones I want to ride you, first. You want to ride the good ones yeah, first? Yeah, I want to get that done first. See, I remember here, and it's a good point because it's sort of like, Again, from a horse train's perspective, you know, you cattle, your cattle are fresh, you're fresh, makes you feel good about yourself, you know, and then, but then it might deteriorate as your day goes on. I remember seeing an interview with that, um, oh, what's a darn's good mare, Spice. All Spice. All Spice. Yep. And the guy that started her, he was like, oh no, I used to ride a last all the time. And he said, most horse trainers would ride it first, but he said, I wanted to go home feeling like I am a horse trainer. And I sort of thought that was an interesting thing too because he was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter how ba- bad your day's going. You know, it doesn't matter how bad your cows are. You'd finish riding her and you'd feel like a, the world's best horse trainer. Cows all of a sudden come good. Yeah. And I sort of thought oh, I could do but I can't do that. I'm no, I, I would struggle. I would struggle I like the because thought I'd, of it. I'd be just looking too much forward to getting on the ne- onto the good ones, onto the ones I really want to ride. And it's funny because i got one stud at the moment that he's actually our, our own horse and he's the first one I work of a morning and and I sometimes I think to myself I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing by him because I'll start out in you know wanting to work across or something and the cows aren't very good so then all of a sudden I'll be going round on him and then you know tomorrow I'll work him in a different bridle and I'm not one for swapping gear too much I try and keep it simple but I, I think to myself sometimes I'm not sure that it's 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 not you know negative for him but sometimes I wonder because usually by the time I've got him worked I've figured out okay, these set of cows are not what I thought they were going to be, so I need to work a certain way. And, you know, so all the other horses come in and they get to work how it's how it works better, where he has to cop it all. Yeah. You know, I'm always cautious that I'm not, you know, putting him in a bind. But, sure. But, yeah, I, I reckon he's a bit of a guinea pig some days. So then, you know, with all this, yeah, we've talked a lot really about where you've got to and, you know, you're in a comfortable position now or, you know, still obviously working hard, but in comparison... To where you've been, you're you know pretty stable. Yeah, what, well, what? we're not eating near as many baked beans, mate. <laughs> no, or just buying one, buying your beers single. Well, yeah, and even when we go shopping now, we don't have to put the you know the half the trolley back because we can't afford it. <laughs> and you buy you buy the beer by the carton now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't try not to buy too much beer. Get the mates to do that. So yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, we can buy a carton every now and then. So then, what's the next? Five, ten years look like? What What are you hoping to do? I'm hoping to buy more country, or, or if we can't buy. Some some more country just close by. We'll, we'll um we'll maybe sell our block and 
and buy a bit bigger place, stay in that area because it's such a good, such a good cow supply area. I yeah. really like it there. Yeah, it's cold in the winter and all that stuff, but it's uh, hot in the summer everywhere else too. So yeah. it's uh, it is a nice part of the world. And and yeah, look, just you know, I, I stay really close with Roger. I try and you know talk to him almost every day, and we talk horses and try and get better. And I ask questions. I talk to Todd about horses and Butsy and. Just try and I want you know I want to be the best I can be you know and and always have an open mind. I want to be versatile, you know. I still want if I need need to ride a camp horse, I still will. We saw, we saw that this year. You you went back out there and you drafted a little bit. You're really good at nutrient there and making the final and even the challenge. You make the challenge final as well. No, just, I missed it. I I didn't go to my marker. I mean, when I went down the fence, I you forgot all your I stock forgot about stuff. that. But um, but the no, look, it, it's good. But I think that just comes back to being a horseman. I don't think. I don't think it – obviously, disciplines are a little different, but if you're a good horseman or if you're, you know, on your way of being on your way to being a good horseman, you should be able to do that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, whether it's a challenge horse or a camp horse or a cutter, it's, there's lots of stuff we do that's very similar, you know, like with your collection stuff and, and how you want one to do things. It's all ties in. Yeah, and, and this wasn't, you know, necessarily a question I even was thinking about, but – uh, we just bought a horse through the sale that you put through, Swipe Right or Tinder, as you guys called him, and I know you put him through the futurity and didn't have him for very long from what I found out after that, but you put your program on him. Talk about that collection. I know that's a big part of what you do on a cow. That's why I've always been keen to get, if I can get one of your horses, I, I like to grab him because we do do a lot of challenging and dry work and that horse you know, just seamlessly f- went into dry work. And I know you would have had to do dry work for your sale preparation, but do you, I put that down to the collection that you build on a cow, that then it's relatable to dry work, even though you might not uh, technically work on it in your dry work. I'm not too sure how much dry work you do with them, but I see how you ride when you're working a cow. Is is that something that's more unique to your style or is it – like I, I look around with – there's 101 different ways to train a cutter and I find that from the cutters that I've been around, you are quite unique, you know, similar with a lot of attributes, but you've got a style. Is, is that what you put it down to, that collection on yeah, the Yeah, it's very important. I mean, for me anyway, I like a certain feel and, and I probably have a way of, of getting horses to move a bit lower than, than maybe some people. I mean, I don't I don't have any tricks. Balance I just, comes to, to mind, like not to cut you off there, but the, your horses look so balanced and that's what I found with Tinder. Left and right's very balanced, very even. You know, he's not stronger or weaker one side I'm, and I'm probably going to develop one on him. Um, but having him come out of your program and I flagged him, you know, pretty early and it was I couldn't tell you if left or right was any better. And then I showed him real quick, and you know, not having him too long and, and we had uh, down here at the cow horse and we had to herd work with him and he hasn't had, you know, a full show program. So he really suits that snaffle bit. But what I noticed about the video when I watched the video was you don't have any time when you're in a show pen to stop him and draw him and make sure that balanced and pull him through the turn. I was just, you know, pulling him through the turn one rein just towards the cow, but you look at his legs and they're just set up right every time. Like he stops, has his legs spread so he didn't have to back or draw or do anything, you know, and he was balanced through his turns and didn't put that pressure on a cow. Is that deliberate? Yeah, certainly. I I used to back horses and, and it comes back to what we're talking about with our collection. Um, you know, I Roger probably was the one that got me out of that and got me on on the on the path of thinking a different way. And and the reason he explained to me early days was um, 
you know, and a horse's natural balance point is actually where he's standing. And what happens if you go and stop one? At the bottom of that stop, he is ready to go and, and go with a cow or, or even dry work. He's ready to turn around and go the other way. But you back him up out of that, all you're doing is backing him out of the stop. So so that was a little bit of advice he gave me early. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I sort of developed it, I guess, and, and developed the collection into the stop and then, and then let him get still and, and come with that cow. And it done a few things for me. It simplified it for me because I didn't have to worry about backing him and and all that sort of stuff, and trying to get it in time with the cow. And to me, if you're not backing one in time with the cow, you might as well not back them at all because you, you know, you're messing with their timing. And, and two, it's easier for them, and it's easier for you, and it takes you out of the equation. You know, it gives them more time in that stop to think about a cow and, and come. And and even those horses that are not as athletic or as not as cow, it's actually easier for them. You know, because they get time to to get still and think and come with the cow, rather than think, oh shit, now I've got to shuffle back. And now I've got to find my feet again. Then I've got to come. Well, then all of a sudden you're way behind. Your timing's out. Yeah. You know, so I just found that, you know, my horses started stopping better and, and it simplified it for me. It takes the it takes any sort of, you know, I don't say that wrestles the right word, but it takes any of any sort of um, that sort of stuff out of them that you don't really necessarily need to do. And and, and the, probably the most, one of the most important things, that it stops you thinking for them. You know, like I, I just... I kind of keep myself with things and I just observe people and, and I'd watch someone work a horse and they'd they'd go and stop him, they'd back him up and they'd turn him and that was all good and they'd go and do it the other side and they'd do this six or eight times to where they must have felt like it's going to work. So then they'd run over that side and stop and put their hand down. Oh, mate, it's stand there. Yeah. And just his ears would go back on him and like, are you going to back me and tell me what to do? So I just got away from it and I just sort of started letting – like they'd – even horses that have probably been trained that way, I just let them get still, just keep pulling that nose through, get still, pull that nose through, you know, just just smooth but pull that nose through and, and get them to start thinking that all they've got to do is land and then they start getting confident where their feet are. And once they're confident where their feet are, they'll start stopping properly and stopping straight and then just coming. And it takes, you know, all the, all the I guess, the technicalities of, of backing one, keeping him straight, keeping him in time with the cow, all that sort of stuff because, you know, when you show one, you ride him to a stop and then what do you do? You want him to come with the cow. Yeah. So so I just kind of simplified and went right back to my, my two-year-olds all the way along, you know, and, and just I just I just bring him with a cow. If one isn't stopping quite how I want, I might just gather him up a bit more in the travel, get him into that stop a bit quicker, and, and soon, soon they develop that they need to get stopped and still and think and come rather than have me get too involved and, and, and want to back them and do the thinking for them. So then you said, uh, you know, with your style, the, the horses get lower-headed. Is And you also mentioned through the podcast where you're not big on tie-downs. What does that come through? How does it come through? Well, I think it comes through from, from just having that time in the stop. Yeah. You know, they've got time to actually think. So they, they, they can, over, a, over a, a training period, they learn that if they can land there and just have that, split second or that little bit of time in that stop, they can get down to almost eye level, I guess, and read that cow better, you know. And, and I mean, I haven't used to tie down five years. I've got, got a freezer full of them at home. If anyone wants any, I'll, yeah. I'll sell them. Put, you it, know, we'll put but, that on our socials. Yeah, I could make a raffle of tie downs. But, look, I'm not saying there's, there's not a – there's plenty of guys that use them and, and have great success with them, that, and that's they've got, their, they've got their place, there's no doubt. But for me personally – 
uh, the, the thing I probably like, and I'm not saying I get it right all the time, but the thing I like is is if when I'm working one, if I feel a little spot there that's not right, I can fix it. Whereas I found with a tie-down, that tie-down most of the time would cover that up for me. And then when I went to show him, I'd feel that spot and not like it. Yeah, sure. And 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 also, once I got away from tie-downs, I felt like I knew where my boundaries were more. You know, I knew that if I rode him to that stop outside that cow or or wherever it may be, I knew that that was going to happen. I didn't didn't feel like that I need to get outside that cow and stop him, and that horse might go another you know another three foot and, yeah. and put me out of whack. So so the, the sooner I got away from, the better it was for me anyway. Okay. We're going to get off the serious questions and start to sort of wrap it up. But I know you listened to the Huey podcast and he's sort of throwing you under the bus here a little bit, Huey. I asked him whether or not he was a mummy's boy and he denied it. I, I tend to think that the perception is he is. But he said if you're going to be interviewing Matt, he wanted me to bring the attention to the fact that you're batting way above your average with Casey. And that's why I didn't bring Casey up earlier because I was waiting to get to the end of his podcast. Can you tell us, and, and you know, how did you meet Casey? How did you convince more to the point, Casey, to, to go out with you? Because you're aware of this, aren't you? Oh, for yeah. looking at a, yeah, I mean, for looking I at a, because they, they was doing that on, um, like, she's a 10, and they talk about it on Instagram. It's gone off, but it was a thing for a while where it was like, oh, you know, Matt Oakley's a six, but because of, you know, because he rides Hilda, he's a 10. Is that how you did it? No, no, no. I, I was just a camp drafter. So where and did she you was a cutter. So, well, you know, I was, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I just, that good old social media, I got on it via Facebook. Oh, so and, the man that uh, doesn't like TV or spending too much time inside. Yeah, no, I got on it via Facebook and, she, and I asked her, did she have any horses for sale? And, and, um, but is that really what you wanted to know? No, not at all. And I probably didn't even have anyone to buy the horse. <laughs> but she did. She had this gelding, and anyway, it got the better of me. And you know, gradually, I got a phone number over the next few days, and 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 then I just took off to Walker from Tamworth to look at this horse that I had no one to buy, <laughs> and and got up there and and uh, had a look at the horse, and or she rode it. I didn't see the horse at all. I, I imagine she was riding one round, and and um, yeah, went and had dinner with with um, the family that night. And I remember it was raining, and um, and her mum said. And they probably don't know this, but her mum's like, no, no, you can't drive back to Tamworth. You know, it's raining. I'm like, well, you know, I'll be fine. My ute doesn't leak. You know, it's fine. <laughs> no, no, you can't go. Stay, stay the night. You'll be right. Anyway, that was, that, was done. that was me done. I stayed the night and never left. <laughs> you moved in. Yeah. So then she became a worker. You know, she come work for me. I, I, she was never really my worker, but she, she come and spent time with me and, and that was that. We were done. So what, what point then did it transition? Like, was, were you guys going out before she came and worked for you? Or you started going out Oh, uh, mate, we were going out from when I got there. Yeah, that's what you think. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. I, think yeah I still that's, remember driving out you're there. You are going out there. You are going out with the one you saw on Facebook. But when, did you, when, if I interviewed Casey, when would she think it became like, oh, we're dating? Oh, uh, not as early as I did. You know, <laughs> oh, no. I, I, I remember driving out there and she was texting me on her mother's phone because she had no phone credit. So me being the, the guy that wants to text her, I bought phone credit for her at the server on oh, the way out. she was out. smart. She so was I smart. give her the phone credit because I'm like, we can't text with what we want to yeah. text you about on your mum's phone. Yeah, it's just fair so, enough. So, yeah, and then it wouldn't have been long. It wouldn't have been long. She come down and started 
started working and, and I don't know that we ever asked each other out. It was just one of them things. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously she thought I was a 12. So <laughs> we just, that was it. Out of 100. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then <laughs> so then going to, when, this is in Tamworth, this is before going to Butsy's? Yeah. Okay, so I didn't know when the timeline. So then she, did she move up there? Yeah, with she to moved to Butsy's. Oh, so Butsy got two for one. No, no, he wasn't that lucky. No, he, uh, she, she worked, we rented a house in town, she worked at the jeweller shop. And, um, yeah, she's been through it all with me. It wouldn't have been too many that would have stuck. Yeah. Oh, um, it's I mean, it's, it was, yeah, she stuck it out and and um, it's it's all good, but it was tricky. So then with Jim and Linda's podcast, uh, we had a bit of a joke there about the, the fact that they do work together and Jim turns back, you know, all day for her and he just said, oh, it's, there's never drama in the arena. It's always smooth sailing as, he, as we laughed about that because obviously when you're trying to work – particularly cutting horses, turn back, you know, there's a lot of responsibility on, you know, trying to get the right thing done at the right time and when to get it done. So there's obviously blues in the arena. You just said before Casey turns back with you, you guys, how, does, how do you guys make that work in your relationship? Well, I'm never going to put Pierre in the in that turn back position because well, I know it, how it will go. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, it's not hard anymore. It's, it used to be hard, but you soon work out that, when you've got to get someone else to do it, it's never as good. And and when they get off the horse and go to the house because you, you, you've had a disagreement, <laughs> it's never much fun stepping to a stale cow. So, uh, no, look, we get along good. We, you know, I'll have my say every now and then and she'll definitely have hers. But, um, no, for the most part, it's, it, it is good now, you know, because she understands what I want and I understand what – what, how you can what I need to it. when I need to be quiet and and uh, it's it's pretty smooth. So who wears the pants? Not me. Oh, that's that's probably how, if you figured that out. Yeah. Then you're pretty no, right. I Maybe there that. needs to be a saying: those who turn back together stay together, or something like that. Yeah. Working for Jim and Linda, it's working for you too. Yeah, yeah. No, so, well, Jim's the same. He doesn't wear the pants, and neither do I. <laughs> then since Huey threw you under the bus and you said you've been good mates with Huey, well, let's where's the Huey story? Have you got something you can oh, throw him under there? I don't have too many Huey stories. I mean, he yeah, he's he's, he's way, been way too sneaky. Well, he's just shiny, time. isn't he? Oh yeah, no, he's there's only one of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to be like him, but never got there. The closest I got, I bought that trailer off him that leaked, and <laughs> um, bought his Mack truck off him that nearly killed me in a. When I sold it and it caught on fire and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm not buying another truck off him. No. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I remember well, that, that's a Huey story that we can we can talk about it because we were just at Nutrien and not long before that the podcast came out and you'd listened to it and we'd all caught up under there before we went into the ring and you said to Huey, is that that trailer, the one you were talking about on the podcast, is that that trailer you sold me? And and he's like, yeah. And you're like, good on you, mate. And he's yeah, like, oh, yeah. no, I fixed it. I fixed it. Yeah, yeah. No, he never fixed it. <laughs> yeah. He might have got the chassis welded up, but nothing else worked. Oh, fair enough. All right. We're getting towards the end here. And it is the four, uh, Foresight Rider Series. Can you give us a, a Foresight story? Or, or tell me first, how did you come by it? Like, how did you hear about Foresight? How did you, you know, come by the product? Yeah, well, I guess the first time I heard about it was obviously the the promotion through shows and things like that. And I, I remember I won some foresight um, at an event, maybe even have been scone year, like a few years back. And I'm probably a little bit like Butsy. I don't know whether – I'm sure Butsy would agree that he's – you know, I'm, I'm not a believer in um, 
in lots of stuff until it's proven, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a lot of stuff out there that, you know, is probably just promoted very well. Sure. You know, but I I bought the, uh, I won this foresight and, and we were just giving it a turnback horse at the time. I mean, I didn't know much about it and I really didn't read into it too much. And, and then we actually won a little bit more and we started to have a fair bit of this foresight around us. So we started giving it to our show horses and 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 I don't know that I felt a massive change until I got one horse that had come from a different trainer and and the vet had made a comment to me and said, oh, look, you know, he's probably not going to last 12 months. He's got bad, bad stifles and stuff like that and, and hocks are not great. And, and I thought, oh, you know, that's unfortunate, you know, because he feels like a good horse. Doesn't doesn't feel too bad to me, but that's no good. And anyway, long story short, he we had him on foresight, and uh, and we had him for twelve months. Never had a bad day with him. Like he never never was sore or anything like he was meant to be. And we X-rayed him right before the futurity because he was uh, just a maintenance checkup, like we do with all of them and that horse. And Josh is going to get the X-rays on it, but that horse is sound. Completely sound, and and the vet said to me, he's like, I cannot believe that these X-rays are the same horse. He actually went back and done him again because he said they compared to twelve months ago, they do not compare. Yeah, and that was the only change. So there's a lot of stories with it, and that's what I when I talk to people about foresight, you and I'm the same. I'm, I'm not a believer in something just because someone tells you it's good. You know, the other Dan, he's like that. He's always wanting to find the next greatest thing and wants to be in front of the curve. You know, he, he believes in everything and I was always the opposite. It was a bit of that yin and yang. So now when I talk to people, it's like it's almost better if they've got that story of, oh, the old kids' ponies. Like that's who the first horses we had on it. Mm-hmm. It was like the kids' ponies, double image, you know, those older ones that are feeling that because when you give it to them, you can see and feel the difference. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't from that, uh, you know, those sort of, you know, experiences and that's what I do now. If I've got someone at a clinic or someone's talking about a horse, I'll give them some. That made me put all the horses on them, and that was a bit of a story with Josh saying, you know, the, the prevention is just as important. So at that point, we weren't really giving it to, to the young horses, so now it's sort of like anything that's in work pretty much is is on foresight and, and then typically stays on foresight. We're going to fire off just to wrap things up, some quick questions. I don't know this first, but they're just random ones. Being a favourite TV show or movie after listening to this podcast, there's really not going to be one, but there must be something. If you're going to watch TV other than football – is there anything on TV or a movie that uh, comes to mind, mate? I got in. I mean, I watched Yellowstone. It was pretty good. Ooh. That's as close as I can get. You know, I, I really can't recite too many others off. Yeah, well, that's I, that, I just, that's a good one. You know, I watch a State of Origin and football and Yellowstone, I guess. All right, righty. Yeah. What kind of music do you listen to? Oh, just the just the country type. I don't even know just how to explain not, it. Nice just and the, simple. Just the uh, simple Because you have a radio going by the Yeah, I've got a radio going. Um, it's just Spotify Premium. Yeah. So they, they they shoot me a, oh, well, I guess they just do it to everyone, but they no, list every day. And, yeah. and um, it's just all the. There's somebody there typing in and going, all right, let's yeah, have a look Yeah, well, that's what I thought there was. Matt's, definitely. how's he feeling? It's Wednesday. Is it, you know, is a show coming up? Yeah, well, yeah. I can tell how good a day I'm going to have by the list they send me. <laughs> so, yeah, just country, mate. Then, and I didn't. I'll just throw this one in there, podcast, because obviously you li- you listen to Huey's podcast. Is that something you put on at the arena as well? Do you listen to po- podcasts? Yeah, I, I, well, see, we don't have a lot of phone service at home, so I download them on the Wi-Fi, and, and I like um, – I listen to, uh, you know, like Cow Horse Full Contact and – That's a good one. And um, have you got Converse on the fo- Cowboy and – For Parney? 
Yeah, Andrea. Yeah. Listen to him too. Um, I like the Alpha Blokes podcast. It's, oh, it's pretty good. It's just yeah. a little bit more lighthearted than some yeah, of them, yeah. and it's it's good. But yeah, I'm a big one for that, you know, because we don't have a lot of phone service and stuff. So I download them, and while I'm doing jobs on the tractor or fencing or something, I'll have them going, you know. But just with just with my phone. But um, yeah, now I'll, I'll I'll do all that. So then the next one, next quick question, probably doesn't relate to you either. But favorite place to holiday? Uh well, I reckon that'll be our honeymoon when we get there. You still haven't had a honeymoon. Got How long yet. have you been married for? Uh, four years. And you're waiting for a honeymoon. Yeah, we'll get there. So what What are we waiting for? Can well, we make Can we well, make this happen? I could never give me three year olds a week off, so I, I struggle to get away. But we will do it this year. Yeah. Yeah. What What, what ideas have you got? Can oh, you give I wouldn't it away? want to go Port Douglas up that part of the world. Yeah. See around up in there. Never been up in there. Been yeah. over the states and a few, around a few places, but never been up north that far. Yeah. I want to go and do that. Be careful with the crocodiles up there, right? Yeah, that won't get me. I don't swim. <laughs> I bet that. So that's the funny thing. You're going to go on holiday and you're going to go to a beach and you're not even going to swim. No. You're no. probably not even going to get out of the hotel room. So you might no, just... no, but it'll be good. It'll be a different view to home. Yeah, that's the right. sun, there won't be snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going up there in July, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll meet up with you. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, all right. What's, what's your favourite type of food or food? Um... I reckon like smoked brisket or ribs or something done properly. Actually, you know, a good friend of ours, Chris Shafransky, he told me that. I said I was going to come up and we're going to do this podcast and the weekend I was thinking of it, then it ended up being I think that you had a fair bit going on there and he was still like, no, nah, come up. He'll be smoking some brisket, you know. He's like, yeah, you got to come up. Yeah, no, I do a little bit. I, I don't have a lot of – as much time to do it because you got to be around the house the whole day. But if we're just – Chris has been good, giving me a hand with different things so we can put one on and, and you know, you pro- it probably takes – it's usually a carton of beer to make sure it's ready, you know, so you've got to be around. Yep, there's uh, – he, he can, if he hasn't already, he can cook a mean roast pork in a campfire. Yeah, no, he hasn't, he hasn't shouted me yet. Yeah, so – well, I actually don't know how good he can do it because he runs at 50% with me. When he was – he I don't know if you know this story, so – for the listeners, Chris Shafransky, um, friend of ours, he's, he's, I called him while he was there. He was like the oldest intern we've ever had at Double Down because he, he rang up. So did he tell you any of these stories? He told me a little bit, yeah. Okay, so he, he rang up. So Chris sort of, it was, um, again, for listeners, try to give you a backstory. Uh, I don't want to give you his age, but he's a fair bit old, older than, than Matt and I. And he's in the aviation um, industry. And so with COVID, there was you know not much work on. He'd had a, a marriage split up and somebody at work said to him, is there something that you want to do? You know, this is an opportunity now. You're not tied down. You can work from home. Not very much work. What do you want to go and do? He's like, I want to go and work with a horse trainer. He's like, do you, do you know someone? He's like, well, he'd done one of my clinics and one of Rob Leach's clinics. So he rang me first and he told me what he's thinking. He's like, can I just come over, you know? And I, I remember this guy from one clinic and I was sort of like, I didn't have a good reason to say no, basically. And I, we didn't need help or anything like that. He's like, I'll just stay out of your way. I've just got a couple of dogs and not handy dogs, by the way, not like your dogs. A couple of dogs and uh, a horse and a gooseneck and I'll put it in the shed and happy days. And that's what he did. He just drove down and I was actually, it was in that COVID period and we didn't have much going on other than riding horses. So we had all this time on hands and I was getting into this campfire oven cooking at, at the house there and he drove in the driveway and he walked down there to say good day, and then he met Pierre and the kids and, and he sort of had a look what I was doing and then he, he parked in the shed and he stayed there for about, I don't know, it was, it was over a year, he was, he was living out of the shed. He even, funnily enough, 
bought his place and um, still stayed in the shed. And he was actually thinking of renting the place out. And staying in the shed. And still staying in the yeah, shed. I was no, like, he's a I, smart man. I said, eventually you're going to have to go, you know. But we had clinics and everything else like that. And he really came out of his shell. And then he bought that little horse and ended up at your place there. And, and you know, he's living his best life. And, you know, he talks really highly of the times he spends up there and it's doing good for him. And he's a ripper bloke. So there's a little shout out to Chris because I know he'll probably listen to this. Oh, too. mate. Yeah. And look, you know, that's one thing with this whole horse training thing i think everyone would agree whether you realize it or not it takes a village yeah i always heard that sort of thing on a on a an interview in america but you know whether it's chris or um anyone at home looking after home while we're away or anyone that's helped us in any way there's so many people and he's another one you know he hasn't he hasn't been around us that long but he's done done phenomenal what he's done since he's been hanging out yeah and then so i didn't actually finish what that why i even started that story so then he says, I'll do uh, roast pork in, in the uh, when we've got some time in the campfire. And uh, he get it, had it there and, and he'd, it was the same deal. He'd just, it was almost like the brisket. He'd, he'd be doing a job and then he'd just drive the buggy up to the house there and water going on and bits and pieces. And, and I came up to the house there and, you know, you get the dusted the coals off and, and, and got the campfire oven, lifted the lid off it and just the noise and this thing. It was the most beautiful roast you've ever seen. Had the veggies in there, and then I, we we had that meal is one of the best porks we've ever pork roast that we've ever had. Great. So then I hit him up to do it again, and I he, he did. We, we had him a bit busy that day, so he didn't get to it too much, and like burnt the outside, inside raw. It was like a complete disaster. So when I say he does a good one, he runs out about fifty percent because that's yeah. the only two that he's ever done. Yeah. So hopefully, if you get him up there to do one, just make sure you give him plenty of time. Don't put him under too much pressure. Yeah, no. Don't I chat to him too much. I won't give him a second job. Don't give him. Just no. let him just do that. A time. And I think he'll appreciate it. So, what about favorite drink then? Um, favorite drink probably. I don't mind Jim Beam just on the rocks. Okay. Pretty good. Just your standard Jim Beam, or is it? Because did you hear Beam. Huey? He had like yeah, this obscure. Liqueur it's, rum that only Moonby of all places. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't afford that though. Yeah, I only drink it when I go to his place. <laughs> yeah, well, we got a bottle and I think I, I got about two sips out of it and Piers finished it. Yeah, it she, is good. I agree. He she, actually, I don't know that you got onto that at our place, but we, we've got a few of those ones at home that he's talking about and they're pretty good. Okay. They really are. They're only a treat, but yeah. I'm talking about everyday drink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You like the? I got these beers. These yeah, they're proper good. These cores. Yeah, I, I got oh, that because yeah. that's what I heard you drink. Yeah, yeah, no. I think maybe Chris told me that. Yep, no, he's was, right. I was very specific when yeah, I was. Him and I drink a few of these at home. I, I yeah. bet. I bet. All right. Then the next one, um, and really probably well, we're getting towards the end here. What annoys Matt Oakley? Lazy people. Yeah. People that make excuses. Fair enough. Don't like it. Yeah. So that gets gets you upset. Yeah, I don't like it. Yep. Okay, all right. I wonder we all got the same amount of time in the day and we all come into this world with nothing. We all go out with nothing. Yeah. We all pull our jeans on the same way, so I don't like oh. lazy people. Okay, fair enough. Last one, if you if you weren't a horse trainer and you could do literally anything in the world, right? You could have any talent in the world, you could do whatever you wanted, okay? So no limitations, but you can't be a horse trainer. What would you be? I would be a uh, professional bull rider. That was what I would have been. Well, I no, that's not right. I would not have been one of those, but I would would have loved to have been JB Mooney or someone like that. I just <laughs> I feel like the just just what he can do on a bull would be something that you just 
He's phenomenal. a unique athlete. Yeah. Especially in America. I mean, those bulls over there are next level and those guys are too, with their athleticism and what they can do and they make enough money at it over there to make it work. But I reckon that would be unbelievable. Yep. If You'd have to be proper good. I get that. No, no, I this is, risk, I'm telling you, the question is, yeah. you've got that talent. It's yeah, I wouldn't want to ride one of those hops around the arena here. I'd want to ride a... Yeah, no, and this is this is saying you'd have the talent to be able to do it. Yeah, and it's, 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 I, rider, mate. I sort of wondered if it was going to be like, oh, you know, rock star or you know, something like that. That's what I sort of thought when I wrote that question down. I thought if I was asking Dan James this, he would it would be something with music because he he still gets a guitar out and thinks he can play. And he's horrendous. Yeah, really. yeah. No, I know if, my limitations. But if he if he had the ta- if you could give him the talent, I, I think that's what he'd like to be doing. In front of you know big crowds, and that's why he does the horse entertainment. I think because it's the closest Close to it, closest to it. Yeah. yeah. All right, Maddie. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, mate. It's been good. You've been yeah. an unreal story, and and um, you know I know our listeners will get a lot from it. And you know it's a, it's like I said before the Foresight Rider series. So you're another one of the Foresight Riders, and you know building the product proud. And I know uh, Josh loves having you a part of the team. So thanks for hanging out. Yeah, no, thank you, and thanks to Foresight and Josh for all he does for. All the foresight people and, and all the yeah all the uh, different sports and that he, he sponsors it's great absolutely yeah thanks Matt no worries I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did please help us out by commenting with a review as well as rating and sharing on your socials this helps us out greatly and we really appreciate your support hopefully in 2023 we'll bring you more content than ever before. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye. If you like my daddy's podcast, please write, review and subscribe. Share this podcast with your friends.